Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We didn't get quite as far last week as I had planned on, but we will pick it up today in verse 4. I'm going to read 1 John 2, 4 through 8. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments. This is Now, this is strong language, but I didn't write this. John the Apostle wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. And this might sound a little contradictory, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll work our way through this. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd bless this time in your word this morning. Give us insight and understanding, we pray, into these very precious and important words from the Apostle John. We pray that this would be a fruitful time of Bible study this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John, as you know, in these, uh, the first chapter and then on into the second chapter, we've been dealing with that issue of sin. And the encouraging verse we read a couple weeks ago, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see, you know, two sides of the coin here. On, the, on one side, John says, I write to you that you will not sin. But then he turns right around and says, but if you sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a, a mediator, Jesus Christ, who represents us before the Father. But at the same time, we do have accountability as believers, and he gets into that here. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. That's where we left off last week. And we talk about what does that mean to have the truth within you? Well, obviously, feeding upon God's word, King David wrote about 3,000 years ago, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So one aspect of having the truth in us is to have God's word in our hearts and in our minds. That comes through regular meditation on the word of God, Bible study individually, and then as a group when we gather as we have gathered this morning. But it also has to do with having Jesus Christ in us because he is the truth. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. He's not the way to the truth. He is the truth. And so when you're born again by the Spirit of God, when you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and He comes to live inside of you, then you have the truth in you. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. And this verse illustrates the principle that we set out back in verse 3 last week. We know that we have come to know Him if we obey his commands. And so if we do not obey Christ, then the obvious conclusion is that we do not belong 
to him. Now, this might sound kind of weird. You're going to have to really put your thinking cap on here, use your abstract reasoning. But when I was studying for this, this scene from this movie came into my mind. I don't know if you can connect the dots, but my weird mind connects the dots. So let me, let me read my last phrase again before I give you this little story. If we do not obey Christ, it is obvious that we do not belong to him. So this is from one of the Pink Panther movies. I would like to do the voice, but I want to make sure that you understand every word, so I'm not going to do the voice. Remember the movie Shrek where the little kid says, Do the roar! Do the roar! He wants Shrek to do his famous ogre roar. Anyway, that's another story. Okay, so Inspector Clouseau checks into a hotel. On his way to his room, he sees a small shaggy dog sitting on the ground. Does your dog bite? Does your dog bite? He says. Clouseau asks the man at the desk. The man says no. So Clouseau stoops to pet the dog, who immediately chomps down on his hand. I thought you said your dog did not bite. I thought you said your dog did not bite, Clouseau says. That is not my dog, <laughs> says the innkeeper. And if you can connect to that, to what I said previously, then you're doing good. Okay. <laughs> okay, verse 5. Who, <laughs> I love those movies. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And of course, perfected means made complete or brought to a place of maturity. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is made complete in him. That fullness of God's Agape love. But notice something. Here, John equates obedience, keeping God's word. He equates it with love. So as I mentioned last week, and I do mention quite often, love is not a feeling. I mean, there can be some great feelings attached. We talked about warm, fuzzy feelings last week, and I'm not going back there again. But love is not a feeling. It's a commitment. And agape love, God's love, his unconditional love, the commitment was when Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, laid down his life in our place. That's commitment, isn't it? Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So if we are truly committed to God, according to John, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so this is God's word. If we're truly committed to God, we will obey him. Obedience is the strongest evidence that we truly love God. And he says, by this we know that we are in him. By this, by keeping his word. What does it mean to keep his word? It means we don't throw it out, we don't disregard it, we don't ignore it. Again, like David, we hide it in our hearts so we might not sin against God. We keep it by obeying it. And also by exhibiting agape love to those around us. Because, again, truly the love of God is perfected or made complete in the person who walks in obedience. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 and 38, Jesus 
tells this young man, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. He says, well, I've done all that from my youth. Well, what's the greatest of these commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, to love God. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now John's going to go much deeper on this subject of love and hate and so forth as we move through the, his first epistle. But he says, we know that we are in him. And by the way, it's vitally important to know that we're in him, isn't it? Because if we're not in him, that means he's not in us. And if that be the case, then we are lost and without hope. That's why we don't talk about religion. We talk about relationship. Religiosity does not necessarily equate to relationship with God. Being born again, having the Son of God come and live inside of you, the Holy Spirit, that's what results in relationship. And the fruit of that relationship is that we obey Him. Now John gives us the second way to know that we know God. The first way is that we walk in obedience. That requires a little bit of self-reflection, self-examination, doesn't it? And again, our number one tool is the, is the Bible, God's Word. It is like a mirror. James talks about the Word of God like a mirror. You look into that mirror and you see who you really are. The Bible tells you who you really are apart from Christ and who you are and can be in Christ. So in order to objectively evaluate ourselves, evaluate our lives, are we really walking in obedience to God? It absolutely requires looking into the mirror of His Word. Verse 6, we get in and out of the second way. He who says he abides in Him, or lives in Him, as you know, Paul said, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So you could say, to know him is to live in him. Whoever says he abides or lives in him, Christ, to know him is to live in him. John 15, 4, abide in me, dwell in me, live in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Jesus previously in his passage says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So again, there's a difference in simply claiming to believe in God, to believe in Christ, and actually living in him, your life. He's the very focal point. He's the center. Everything revolves around him as opposed to the humanistic, selfish, sinful worldview where everything revolves around me. And that is the more typical attitude with most people, is it not? What about my needs? Right? That's a popular phrase today. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He who says he abides in him 
ought himself also to walk just as he walked. One translation says, must walk as he, Jesus, walked. And must is a very strong word. But I believe that is the more literal and accurate translation. Ought almost sounds like you've got an option there, but we really don't. We must walk as Jesus walked. What does that mean? Our walk is our life. It's our lifestyle. It's how we live day in and day out, how we behave day in and day out. We walk as, we are to walk as Jesus walked. How did he walk? In self-sacrificing humility. Do you agree with that? Always putting others before himself. Even to the point of exhaustion. We can actually see in the Gospels there were those times where Jesus was exhausted and he had to get away by himself and recharge his batteries and uh, spend time in prayer and so forth. He, he pushed himself to the limit in terms of his human capacities as a man, fully man, fully God. And again, no more so than when he died on the cross for our sins, the, the torment, the torture that he endured, the scourging, the abuse a life of absolute self-sacrificing humility. And we see the fruit in the lives of the apostles as they followed in his footsteps. And not just the apostles, but many others. The first martyr of the church was actually not one of the apostles. It was Stephen, the first man recorded in the New Testament to be killed, stoned to death for his faith in Christ. Matthew 16:24 Jesus said to his disciples, "If anyone desires to come after me, to follow me, to live in me, if you will, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me." When I read that verse, there seems to be some kind of a disconnect with much of what's being taught and preached in churches today. Let me read that again. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. You say no to self, no to the flesh. Take up his cross. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to have to die for your faith. I mean, people it's happening to people in various parts of the world right now, even as we're here this morning. It's something we haven't really experienced in our country. We've been very blessed since the founding of this nation to have that freedom to worship God freely, openly, but we see those freedoms gradually being ripped away from us. But at this point in time, we still face very little threat of actual physical suffering for our faith. The cross of Christ is the cross of self-denial, and you could also include in that the cross of rejection. Because when someone really takes it seriously, being a true, dedicated, committed disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, there's a very high probability that people are going to reject you. And that's why many people back away. It's the Marty McFly syndrome. I just don't think I can take that kind of rejection. You can see I'm saturated with movies. I think that's when his girlfriend was encouraging him to audition for his band to play at the school dance, and he was afraid to do it. He says, I just can't take that kind of rejection. But it's true of many people who have made a commitment to Christ, 
expressed a desire to follow Christ. And if you've studied the parable of the sower and the four different kinds of seed and so forth, you find that that's true, that for many people, the desire to follow Christ is choked out by the trials and tribulations that come along with being a follower of Christ. The cross of Christ, it could include physical suffering, it could include martyrdom, but it most certainly will include self-denial and rejection if you want to be serious. Just out of curiosity, not trying to embarrass anyone here, how many of you here today have experienced rejection from family and friends because of your faith? Look at that. All over the room. All over the room. And it's unfortunate, it's sad, but we can't afford to jeopardize our eternal destination, our eternal life in Christ, because certain people are unhappy with our faith. Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And again, what are we talking about here? John says, verse 6 of 1 John 2, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. And I'm sure we can all readily and easily say that we fall far short, but this is our goal. We should be striving for this. We, we should be shooting for that mark of walking as Jesus walked when he was here on earth in self-sacrificing humility. And if more believers would pursue this more seriously, I think we'd see a lot more conversions. What do you think? Because when people see that Jesus in us, they're going to want to know him. The problem is people are seeing a lot of other Jesuses and those who claim to be his followers, and it's not that appealing. Thank God for his grace. But this is something we all need to work on. To walk as he walked. So the first indicator we saw, John's given us, that we truly know God. And don't you think it's important to know that we know? That we truly know God? Because there's no worse kind of deception than self-deception. And there are many. Jesus, we, I think we read this verse last week in Matthew 7. Not all those who cry, Lord, Lord, will be saved. There's a vast multitude of people out there in America and all over the world who are fully convinced they're going to heaven. But it's not based upon fact. It's based upon self-deception. If we really want to know that we know him, then we have to examine ourselves and say, well, am I obeying him? Am I following the truths of his word? Or am I just doing my own thing and kind of putting Jesus' name tag on it? People do that, you know. They'll do anything and everything and just stick Jesus' name on there. Like these crazy people who said, God told me to behead my son because he was demon-possessed. You hear these kind of crazy stories, right? God told me to leave my husband or my wife and go be with this other person. No, God didn't tell you to do that. But sadly, that's what happens. People attach... God's name, Jesus' name, to their own foolish actions, their own sinful actions, and it really gives God a bad name. So the first indicator that we know Him, that we truly know Him, is we obey His commands. The second one is that we walk as Jesus did. 
in humility and self-denial. Now, do all believers obey God all the time? Does anybody in this room obey God all the time? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to make anybody here today a liar. Because if you raise your hand, you'll be a liar. Do all believers obey God all the time? No! <laughs> do all believers act in totally unselfish manner all the time? No. That's why I said thank God for His grace. And thank God that we do have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as we saw last week. But having said that, that's, we, we don't use that as an excuse. Having said that, we must still objectively evaluate ourselves regularly 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. Paul is writing about the communion service, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. But we can apply this every day of our lives, not just when we take communion. He says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then back in, down in verse 31, he says, for if we would judge ourselves, we're all pretty good at judging others, aren't we? No, but the Bible says we're to judge ourselves. It's like taking the log out of your own eye before you try to remove the splinter out of your brother's. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, disciplined, that we may not be condemned with the world. So God says either you do it or I'm going to do it. And it's going to be a lot easier if you do it. If you do ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, if you do look in the mirror of God's Word and you say, oh man, I'm really blowing it here. God, please forgive me. Help me not to do this anymore. Change my heart. Change my mind. God loves to hear those kind of prayers and He loves to answer those kind of prayers. So we, we admit and we acknowledge that we fall short, but at the same time we also recognize the need for ongoing, regular self-examination. Regular confession and repentance of our sins so that we can maintain that right relationship with God. Verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Now this word brethren here, it's actually agapatoi. Does it sound familiar? It's from the, that root word, agape. It can be translated, dear friends, agapatoi, brethren. It is a, a term of endearment, a term of love, obviously, because the Greek word is agapatoi. My dear friends, my brethren, those whom I love unconditionally. So John didn't look down on these folks that he was writing to. He also refers to them as his little children. He considered them as friends, his brothers and sisters in Christ, his peers, his equals, and again, as an apostle, setting that example. As Jesus told his disciples, you're not to lord it over those under your authority like the Gentiles do. He says, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, and the only one to ever come up with any God-ordained, spirit-inspired new command from heaven, from the throne of God, is Jesus Christ. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And the reason it's a new commandment, we'll see in a moment that you'll find something similar in the Old Testament, 
But Jesus takes it to the next level. Jesus takes it from phileo in the New Testament, which means brotherly love, warm, tender feelings of affection. He takes it to agape, and he exhibited that agape when he died on the cross for our sins. That unconditional love that loves without asking for or expecting anything in return. That is the very height and epitome of love, God's love, God is love, and it's expressed through agape. So John says, I'm not bringing you a new commandment, but an old one. Jesus says, I am bringing you a new commandment, and that is that you love one another as I have loved you. That you're willing to do anything and everything, including lay down your lives, not only for Christ, but for one another. And again, that may not mean dying physically. Again, laying down your life for someone means you put them before yourself. Just like we've been talking about. Selfless, self-sacrificing, self-denial. He says, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. Now in a few moments we'll look at the origin of this commandment in the Old Testament. But he says, the old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning from the beginning of their conversion, their new life in Christ, and their subsequent spiritual training as babes in Christ, his dear children, his brethren to whom he is writing, and by the way, we're included in that. You've heard it from the beginning of your conversion. From the moment you received Christ, from the moment you were born again, you've been taught about God's agape love. It is the very essence of the gospel message. John 3.16, For God so liked the world. Testing, one, two. God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son. It's the very heart, the very core, the very essence of the gospel message. But now John kind of throws a twist in here in verse 8. He says, again, a new commandment I write to you. But it's not new in that John is the originator, but it's new in the sense that it replaces the old command concerning love Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, you've heard it said. You've heard that it was said, and we'll explain that in a moment. You've heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. It's easy to love those who love you, right? It's not so easy to love your enemy. In fact, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And people have been doing that for eons have they not millennia but i say to you says jesus love your enemies bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you now the original command to love our neighbor was set forth by god through moses in leviticus 19:18 you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, against your fellow Jews. But you shall love your neighbor. Again, that would be, there were some uh, other people living amongst the Jews, but they were converts to the Jewish faith, some people that came with them out of uh, Egypt and so forth. Foreigners. But they were embraced because they embraced the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this was a very limited specific command you could say you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself i am the lord 
But notice what's missing here. It doesn't say anything about hating your enemy, does it? The idea that we must therefore hate our enemy as being the, the converse of love your neighbor, but hate your enemy, that was an inference or an assumption that was applied to this scripture by Jewish rabbis. That wasn't from God. And Jesus quotes it in that manner. You have heard it said. He didn't say the scriptures say. He says, you've heard it said. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So Jesus brings a new commandment. He brings greater clarity to this idea that not only are we to love our neighbor, we're also to love our enemy. And that's what makes the new covenant in Christ superior to the old covenant in that we are called to a higher degree of love, agape love, unconditional love. Which thing is true in him, or you could translate this, its truth is seen in him. This new commandment, the truth of it is seen in Christ. Jesus most certainly did love his enemies, did he not? What did he say? He said some very important and significant things while on the cross, and one of the most important and significant things that he said, he looked down on those that had just crucified him. And that would be not only the Roman soldiers, but it would be the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the men responsible for his conviction, his unjust, illegal trial and conviction. He looked down and he said, Father, what did he say? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So this truth is seen in him. We don't have to ponder, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to scratch our heads and say, how does this work, this whole idea that not only am I to love my neighbor, but I'm to love my enemy? Well, the truth is seen in him. Jesus, who's given us this new command, is the very epitome of love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies. John 15, 13, I've already quoted it a couple times today. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. But notice something else here in 1 John 2, 8. Which thing is true in him and in you? Now we can say that with a certainty regarding Christ, but you, being John's little children, his dear friends, and that includes us, John says that not only is the truth seen in him, it should be seen in us as well. The truth of God's unconditional love, which has been made known through the selfless sacrifice, sacrificial death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary, is also made known or manifest in and through those of us who have been truly born again by the Spirit of God. I remember many years ago, I don't remember who it was that said it now, but it's always stuck with me. And this was the statement. They said, you are the only Bible that some people will ever read. Think about that for a moment. You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. Are they getting an accurate translation? We know there's some really flaky translations out there, right? Well, that speaks not only of some of these flaky Bible translations, but it speaks of some of God's people who are not 
presenting the true message of God's Word. Not only by their spoken words, but by their lifestyle as well. And again, that's why, that's why humility is so important. Because if we can walk in humility and be honest and open with people, listen, man, I know I am far from perfect. Please don't judge God by me. I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my hardest to follow God, to obey Him. But He is perfect, and I'm not. And that, that may not be so much as something that we say to people, but it's exhibited by our attitude, by our lifestyle. It's one thing to be misrepresenting Christ and be haughty and arrogant about it. And it's another thing to be a humble, broken servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. When people see that humility in you, they're far less likely to reject God because of your shortcomings. Does that make sense? We need to be able to exhibit the love of God to people and at the same time, let them know that you don't have to be perfect to follow Christ because if you did, nobody could do it, right? But I think a lot of people have this false impression. They think, Christians think, that they're perfect, and yet they know we're not. Did you follow that? People in the world think that we think we are perfect. Oh, little Miss Goody Tissue, Bobby Sunday School, you know? And yet they see our imperfections, and they think, boy, those people are just a bunch of phony, baloney, hypocrites. They think they're perfect, but they're not. But if we can model to them and exhibit to them that we love God, we love them, we know we're not perfect, that can go a long ways towards winning people to Christ. If they can see Jesus in us, because He is perfect. And it's amazing to me, we read about the earthen vessels that God has, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, chosen to put His Spirit into earthen vessels, imperfect vessels. And that's why it's so important that we deny ourselves to die to self. Paul says, I crucify my flesh. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Because the goal is for people to see Jesus, not us. If they see us, they're going, yuck. But if they can see Jesus, they're going to want to know him too. Okay, so the truth is seen in him. Which thing is true in him and you? And this last section is pretty encouraging, I think, because the darkness is passing away, though it may not seem like it. There's an old expression, and there's, there's an interesting, I've seen a couple of articles recently online where all your favorite Bible verses that are not in the Bible. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those who help themselves, you know. Boy, I love those scriptures. They're not scriptures. <laughs> and this is not scripture, but it certainly, I believe, is descriptive of what the scriptures tell us will be happening just prior to the return of Christ. And that expression is, it's always darkest before the dawn. The darkness is passing away as God's kingdom continues to advance in this world, and it is. The enemy would have us believe otherwise. But God's kingdom is continuing to advance in this world by the preaching of the gospel, the conversion of multitudes of men, women, boys, and girls. A lot of those conversions are taking place in third world countries. 
because people in the first world have come to rely too much upon themselves and their own resources. But people are still being converted all over the world, and so the darkness is passing away. Sin, death, satanic influence, deception, even though it may not look like it, and it is always darkest before the dawn, the darkness is passing away, gradually passing away, and will ultimately give way to the light when Christ returns to rule this world. And so again, just as it's always darkest before the dawn, and then the sun comes up. And Jesus is coming up. He's coming soon. And the true light is already shining. Although this world is still lost in darkness, for all those who have acknowledged and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the true light is already shining, isn't it? Remember the little Sunday school song, This Little Light of Mine? I'm going to let it shine. The true light is already shining in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. So first Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then he tells us, you, my followers, my believers, my disciples, my children. Because if Jesus is the light of the world and he lives inside of you, that means you have now become the light of the world. You're letting your light shine, his light shine through you. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 1 John 1.7. This is one of our first studies in this book of 1 John, I think maybe the second week or so that we got into the book of 1 John, if we walk in the light, and we've been talking today about walking as Jesus walks. If we walk in the light, and notice it's an if, it's a choice. Even though we made that initial choice to receive Christ, to be born again, to be forgiven of our sins, to receive the precious gift of eternal life, we choose daily to walk in the light. We can still, as believers, not choose on any given day to not walk in the light. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Anytime there's a breaking of fellowship between believers, I would propose to you that some kind of darkness has crept in. What do you think? Because if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Because our sins are made known by His light being sh shown into our hearts and minds. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. When we allow God to shine His light into our hearts and minds, it makes known to us those things that hinder our relationship with Him and our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we walk in the light. So it's a choice we each have to make every day. To turn our lives over to Him every day. To walk in the light as He is in the light. To take up our cross and follow Him. So in a sense, you could say what we have here is a new old commandment. First John says it's an old commandment, then it's a new one, 
because Jesus took that old commandment and he made it new by expanding it beyond previous expectations, which again can only be met when the Spirit of God lives inside of you. That agape love, the fruit of the Spirit is coming forth in our lives as we daily walk as Jesus walked. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. When we shine your word into the darkened corners of our lives, it exposes those things that should not be there. Lord, just like when we go through our house, Father, and we turn on the lights, we might see, oh, uh, some trash or dirt or something that we didn't realize it was there. It was kind of hidden over in the corner up against the wall. And we thought, man, I need to clean this up. I've got to get this house cleaned up. It's the same thing with our hearts, our lives, our minds. Lord, we need to clean house regularly because we know if we don't, it builds up and it gets worse and worse. But we thank you that you've given us the means by which to do that, by shining the light of your word into our lives, looking in that mirror that James talks about. And Lord, we have a means of cleansing by confessing our sins, by repenting, asking for your forgiveness and for your help so that we can continue to walk in the light just like Jesus walks in the light. And he is the light. But we thank you, Lord. We are humbled by the fact that you've chosen us to be your vessels, earthen vessels, that you fill with your Holy Spirit and your desire is to shine your light in us and through us. Lord, please help us. We confess to you today that we fall miserably short. But Lord, we truly desire to walk as Jesus walks. Lord, to walk in... Uh, self-denial, selflessness, humility. Lord, because we really don't, we shouldn't even consider anything else. We have nothing to be prideful, arrogant, or haughty about. We are humble in your presence, and we exalt in you. We're proud of you, Lord. Your word says, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. Lord, help us to never boast about ourselves, but to always boast about you. And Lord, as we close now, and we have a little extra time, we just want to worship you with the worship team, and we pray that all those who are needing and desiring prayer this morning would come up, receive that ministry of prayer, the laying on of hands, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, whether it would be for healing, salvation, recommitment, Lord, guidance, direction, provision. Lord, you have everything that we need. And so we ask that you'd help us just to come before your throne of grace this morning, uh, seeking mercy in our time of need. Bless this time of worship and ministry, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.